Chapter 10 of Oscar Wilde, The Story of an Unhappy Friendship by Robert Sherard. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. In the first month of 1891, I saw much of him in London. I had returned, under different circumstances, to my old rooms in Charles Street, and he used to come, to lend the glamour of his presence and of his conversation to the gatherings of poets who used to spend the evenings with me. I remember that on one occasion John Barlas came, accompanied by an extraordinary young female, who, to show the ardour of her anarchist convictions, was dressed in red. Oscar Wilde was civil to her, but Barlas seemed to think that he did not show sufficient deference to the comrade, and as we were walking through Berkeley Square, he indignantly separated from us. He said something to the effect that Wilde ought to have given the lady, the poet's comrade, his arm, which I admit would have afforded a strange spectacle. It was a sign of Wilde's urbanity that he showed neither annoyance nor resentment at the poor fellow's extraordinary conduct, yet nobody hated scenes in public more than he did, and again it was hardly grateful of Barlas, after the way in which, as a stranger, he had befriended him. During the same year we frequently met in Paris, where he had begun to be counted, and seriously, amongst European celebrities. In December he was much fated in the best houses, and leading literatures and artists crowded to his hotel. The Princess of Monaco, sending him her portrait at the time, wrote upon it, Ouvre R. à Oscar Wilde. I was able then to do something towards imposing him on the attention of Paris, which gave him great pleasure. I contributed a long article about him and his work to Les Galois, the leading conservative and royalist paper in France. It was printed on the first page, and made him the topic of the day in Paris. I had invited him to lunch with me at Paylard's to meet Cocayan Cadet, and as we walked down the boulevard we looked at the people sitting outside the cafés, and when we saw anyone reading the Galois, we both pretended to be very proud. Coquelin Cadet was not greatly impressed by my friend, and I imagine that, as a general rule, Oscar Wilde did not have much success with actors. These may have thought his affectation, harmless as it was, an infringement on their own rights, a trespass on their domain. A pleasanter déjeuner was one at the Café Riche, to which I invited John Moreas and Stéphane Mallarmé to meet him. It was very cordial, and I think Oscar Wilde succeeded in amazing the two poets. He had been anxious to meet Mallarmé, and until we saw him come into the room, we did not know whether he was coming. The telegram which he had sent me in answer to my invitation, like every piece of prose he wrote, was worded in so intricate and obscure a manner that neither Wilde nor myself had been able to get at its meaning, though we had spent the whole period of the aperitif puzzling over it. A few months later, Oscar Wilde rendered me a service for which I felt very grateful. On the eve of fighting a duel, under severe conditions, I had written to a relation of mine in London about certain arrangements in the event of my mischance. The good fellow, in true friendship to me, was greatly alarmed, and was for informing the police, so that the duel, with what he deemed its suicidal conditions, should be stopped. However, before doing so, he went to Tite Street to consult Oscar Wilde, who, I am glad to say, was able to dissuade him from an act which would have put me under taboo in Paris for the rest of my days. And after the business was over, I received a letter from Wilde, which was a great comfort to me in a moment of very sore distress. He knew the circumstances, and he wrote to approve of my conduct. 
I do not think that any of his letters ever gave me so much pleasure. This was, however, I think, to be the last joy to me of our friendship, in pleasure at least. I saw little of him during the next three years, which were the years of his splendour and success, for most of the time I was wandering about in the south of France and Spain, and I think that the only time when I visited London was when I accompanied Zola there on his conquest of the English. We met once or twice in Paris, but he did not appear to me the same man. I did not think that prosperity had changed him, but the excitement of his success seemed to have intoxicated him, and he was altogether different. Renunciations of him by mutual friends began to occur, distressing me greatly, for I refused, on the strength of my long knowledge of him, to believe the evil rumours which prompted these partings. I know that in 1894, that is to say, a year before the catastrophe, he expressed the most violent anger, in my presence and that of another man, at a letter breaking off acquaintance, which a young French poet had written him. This young man, who since has stepped into the very first rank of French authors, was an intimate friend of mine, and he told me that though he had never seen in Wilde's conduct the slightest thing to justify the rumour that was spreading from London in connection with his name, this rumour was getting such a hold on society in Paris that, for his own dignity, he was obliged to cease a friendship which he should always regret. I remember Wilde saying, how I wish that I knew the use of arms, so that I could punish these fellows as they deserve. And I believe to this day that his anger was sincere, not feigned for the circumstance. I felt this quarrel very much, and I begged my French friend not to countenance a rumour which he disbelieved by deserting Wilde, but he had answered that he was ambitious and could not compromise himself. His action was prompted in the first place by something that had been said by Léon Daudet, which he had misunderstood. All that Léon Daudet had said was that he did not like Oscar Wilde's way of dressing, and there is no doubt that what militated from the first against my friend's success in Paris was his disregard of French taste in this matter. For instance, he was fond of wearing gorgeous fur coats. Now, in Paris, gentlemen never wear fur coats, they are the distinctive garb of dentists and opera singers, people with whom men of the world in France do not care to associate. He cultivated, to his detriment as far as his social success went, an air of rastacuerisme, which gave the gossips a weapon against him. I fancy that in his splendour our friendship relaxed. Possibly it was because we so rarely met. There was a feeling on my side of having been cast off, although there was little to warrant it. I can only remember that on one occasion, meeting him as he came out of the Variette Theatre in company with a very distinguished person, he would not talk a minute, and brusquely departed. I received no letters from him during this period. It was at Christmas that I met him last, before the catastrophe of 1895, and my impression was altogether a painful one. He was not the friend I had known and admired for so many years. I dined with him at Tite Street, for once there was no pleasure, but distress rather in the occasion. He looked bloated. His face seemed to have lost its spiritual beauty, and was oozing with material prosperity. And his conversation also was not agreeable. I concluded that too much good living and too great success had momentarily affected him both morally and physically. 
there is an american slang phrase which exactly describes the impression which he produced upon me he seemed to be suffering from a swollen head that i could understand after the stress of years and a long period of heart-gnawing insecurity of position he had caught the tide of unbounded prosperity his income then exceeded eight thousand pounds and there was every prospect of a future of unrivalled brilliance very few men can maintain their serenity in the intoxication of sudden fortune eagerly desired but long delayed but what grieved me was that he should deem it necessary to let me feel that under the new circumstances there was a distance between us there was a certain aggressiveness in his tone and in one remark he actually wounded me he had been telling me in detail the circumstances under which the green carnation had been written how the author of that book which really raised the hue and cry had introduced himself to lord alfred douglas in cairo how he had won his way into their intimacy and had collected his materials he concluded by saying now this robert is not for publication it was not a nice thing to say and on his lips it had a peculiar significance for he always professed the greatest contempt for journalists and his manner implied that the remark was addressed to me in that capacity he had been speaking in the early part of the dinner of his horror for people of that profession and had mimicked the eagerness of a reporter who calling at a house where a murder has been committed begs to be allowed to examine the carpet to see if he can find bloodstains i know that i felt indignant and of a mind to leave the house which i would have done but for the presence of mrs wilde and other guests and as i walked home that night i grieved to think that the end was coming of a friendship which had for many years been the joy and the pride of my life End of chapter ten